We're just going to continue what we've been doing over the last few weeks, just to work through the book of Romans. So this morning we're going to be looking at, at Romans chapter 1. So it's Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin from verse 18. So that's Romans chapter 1, beginning from verse 18. And we read that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolvent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Let's just come to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it brings us just face to face with just the total contradiction there is between the world that we see around us and what you say so clearly to us in your word. And Lord, we pray that our desire will to be to bring our lives into conformity with your word, that we will not be conformed to this world, but that we will be transformed by the renewal of our minds. This we pray now that as a people we might bring glory to the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Here's a, a quote I found. He who does not punish evil commands it to be done. Sounds a bit harsh, that, doesn't it? Sounds a bit extreme in our politically correct world of relativism, where more and more we're being indoctrinated that we have to be tolerant, above all, of everything and everyone, where there's little room anymore for absolutes, for such a thing even as right and wrong, and still less for the concept that wrong should be punished. And all of this affects our view of God, doesn't it? For the, You see, there is still room in our, our world today, there's still room in popular culture for the thought of a God of love, but a God who sets standards for right and wrong, a God who acts against that which is wrong, which is evil, a God who judges and condemns that which is evil. There's little room for a God like that in our Western culture today and yet we come back to that quote he who does not punish evil commands it to be done do you know who said that not some ranting right winger it was leonardo da vinci reckoned by many to be the greatest artist that ever lived and certainly a true genius by anybody's standards but isn't he fundamentally right? That if we don't stand against evil, if we don't punish evil, then we do give evil free reign. We do give evil permission to be done. We do, in a sense, command evil. That's true at the, the human level, and we see the effects of our downplaying of, of this principle all around us today in our society. We so often fail to acknowledge today that which is evil as evil. We fail to stand against evil. We fail to punish evil as we should. And so evil is running riot in our society. But let me make it clear. God's heart, God's attitude towards evil is unchanged. He is as implacably opposed to evil now as he has ever been. His nature, which is unchanging, who he is by nature, the fact that he is 100% good, totally pure, blindingly holy, this means that God must stand against evil, and he must act against evil. He must punish evil. And it's this that that's made clear in this passage we're going to look at together today from Romans 1. Let's just set this first in context, though. The last time we looked at Romans, we looked at verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And what we really centered in on there was the gospel, the good news of salvation, and that the heart of the gospel is the righteousness of God. That is that we are saved from God's judgment. We are saved from God's punishment of sin and evil by faith in Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all our sin and unrighteousness, all this world's sin 
and unrighteousness. And in exchange, that great exchange, as we come to him in faith, he offers us then as a gift his righteousness in return. That's then been covered by Paul in those two verses. It will be much expanded on and developed later on in this letter. But you see, for now, from verse 18 of chapter 1, right on to chapter 3, verse 20, he moves on to look at at why we need to be saved and to demonstrate that we are all equally in need of salvation. I think that's important to emphasize because just focusing solely on this passage we're looking at today, it might be possible to come to the conclusion that it's only those guilty of the most outrageous sin who God has problems with. That's just not so. And it's maybe most helpful to just share John Stott's outline on these chapters. And that is, he says that first, chapter 1, 18 to 32, first Paul portrays depraved Gentile society in its idolatry, immorality, and antisocial behavior. Second, in chapter 2, 1 to 16, he addresses critical moralizers, whether Gentiles or Jews, those who profess high ethical standards and apply them to everybody except themselves. Thirdly, chapter 2, 17 to 3, 8, he turns to self-confident Jews who boast of their knowledge and their obedience to God's law, but who in fact do not actually obey it. And finally, chapter 3, 9 to 20, he encompasses the whole human race and concludes that we are all guilty and without excuse before God. So we need to be saved. Why? Because we are sinners. Because we have rebelled against God. Because we have rejected his will for our lives. And because in so doing, we have fallen below the standard of perfect good. His perfect goodness. That which he created us with the potential for. And because this sin arouses the wrath, the anger of God against us. Yes, God is angry at sin. He is angry at the sin of this world for which we share responsibility. Now, what a concept that is. What a concept. A God who is angered by sin. A God whose wrath is aroused by sin. Not a popular concept in the world that we live in today. Not one that's even on the radar for most people. But that's what we're going to concentrate at together now. We're going to define God's anger. We're going to look at the focus of God's anger, the effect of God's anger, and what our response should be to God's anger. So first then, defining God's anger. Now, the problem here that I think so often leads to misunderstanding is when people think about God's anger, God's wrath, in terms of what we more commonly experience of of man's anger in this world. For you see, man's anger, often, far too often, is self-centered. We get angry when we perceive that our interests are under attack. 
And our anger is then frequently irrational. Because when it's examined, it bears no real relation to the facts. And it's all out of all proportion to the imagined offence. And once sparked off, it goes out of control. And again, too often, it's then expressed with malice and animosity and the desire for revenge. This is unrighteous anger. It's rooted in unrighteousness. It's rooted in our sinful pride. God's anger, though, to the contrary, is righteous anger. In the, in the Bible, whenever anger is attributed to God, it's always, not usually, but it is always the right reaction of a holy God to sin and to the effects of sin. And this anger is always expressed in a rational, controlled, and in a proportionate way. Now, you see, that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans when he's talking about God's wrath. He's not talking about some proud God flying off the handle because of some imagined slight against himself. No, he's talking about a holy God reacting righteously in response to sin and evil. Now, now before we move on, let me just say that it is possible for our human anger to be righteous anger. It is possible. It is possible for us to, to get angry in the same kind of way, at the same kind of things as God does. That is when we see sin, sin in all its ugliness, inflicting the damage that it does, claiming the victims that it does, then it's not wrong. In fact, it's what God wants us to do. God wants us then to get angry. Those weak, fallible human beings, we do still have to take great care how we express that anger. But isn't it tragic? Isn't it tragic that this kind of anger is so often absent from our lives? We can look at the world around us and see things like the effects of drug, drugs and crime. We can switch on our television screens and see a world ravaged by war, by famine, by human greed and selfishness. What do we say? What a shame. Before we move on to something else, before we switch on to another channel to be entertained. But you see, let somebody do something against us. Let somebody slight us in an insignificant way and even unintentionally. And that then becomes the biggest and most important thing in our little world. That is a tragedy. Even more, it is a travesty. We need to move on, though, from here, from defining God's anger to looking at the focus of God's anger. And the focus of God's anger, that which arouses God's anger is, is centered here on two areas. Failure to do that which is right by God, godlessness we're told, that is the, the failure to give him his proper place, and failure to do that which is right by other people, that is inhumanity, injustice against our fellow man, that is wickedness, wickedness. As it says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So it's our attitude towards God. 
our godlessness, our attitude towards our fellow man, created by God, loved by God, wickedness. It's this that puts us in the place where we are objects of God's wrath. And as Paul goes on to make clear, for this we are without excuse. For God has revealed enough of himself, of his existence, of the fact of his existence, of his nature, of his character, of the kind of God that he is. He has given us enough evidence of this in the created world all around us, enough to leave us culpable, with no excuse when we refuse to acknowledge him, to worship him as we should. Verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. Now this is what has traditionally been known as as God's natural revelation or, or general revelation. That is, that enough of God can be seen in his creation that can enable people to come to know of him, of his power, of his glory, of the fact that there is a deity. But this is not enough to save them. This only comes as God gives special revelation, revelation of his saving grace through Christ. And you know what? It's true, isn't it? It actually is true. But most people despite all the propaganda of evolutionary science that dominates our media, that most people still, after it all, look at the world around them, they look at its enormity and its power, its complexity and variety, and they decide, despite it all, that there must be a God. And no wonder I say, for while God cannot finally be proved, yet I have no hesitation in saying that most evidence points firmly in the direction that there is a God. I mean, for example, science itself is, is founded on the concept of cause and effect, that something cannot come from nothing with absolutely no cause. And it's a strange thing that there are scientists who apply that rule rigorously in every area except in relation to God. But as the famous illustration puts it, imagine in a world like we live in now, just coming about by chance. Is it like imagining an explosion in a supermarket, producing as its end result a fully prepared Christmas dinner? Now you see, I don't care how many supermarkets you blow up. That just isn't going to happen. You can blow them up from now to eternity. It isn't going to happen. But then... Paul goes on to uncover just how those who do acknowledge that there is a God then seek to escape the challenge that that brings. Because you see, instead of following what would seem to be the logical course, that if there is such a great and mighty God, that he would then reveal himself to us, make himself known to us, and so then searching out what this God has made known, searching him, through his word, through his self-revelation, ultimately in Christ. Instead of doing this, people seek to shape the God, evidence of whom they acknowledge they see all around them, into the form that they want him to be. 
Now here at this point, Paul talks in terms of the idolatry that he saw in his world. He says that people then, verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Now looking on at this, on the surface, it could maybe be easy to try and write this off as something that that isn't that that relevant to life today. You know, this was something that was first century, primitive. It's not for us. But you know, that's actually not just so, just not so. Dig a little bit deeper. Think about this a little bit more. And you can see scary parallels with our society today. For you see, while we don't literally worship images of men and birds and animals and reptiles, what we do is instead we wrap all these things up into a bundle and we worship nature. We worship the material. Isn't that true today that many people, if they worship anything, they worship nature? For them, God and nature are identical. They make no distinction between the creator and his creation. They say God is in everything and everything is part of God. That's the common theme in New Age thinking whose influence has permeated right through our society has taken it to its ultimate conclusion. That God is in man. That God has or at least can achieve God-like status. This is what's going on in our world today. This is what is influencing popular culture. But doesn't it resonate scarily with what Paul saw in his world? In verse 25, he says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. But, you see, the fact is that no matter how we try to escape him, that as we fail to do what is right by God, and as we fail to do what is right by our fellow man, as we sin, we are the focus of God's anger, God's wrath, facing his judgment, facing his punishment. So let's move on to look at the effect of God's anger. And the effect of God's anger is that we are under judgment, facing punishment. Now, the, the ultimate judgment for our sin, the ultimate judgment for our rejection of God, is that at the end of our life, we who have had in life no time for God, we who in life have rejected God, who said we have no need of Him, no need of His love, we can manage ourselves, we will then be separated. We will get the result of our decisions and we will be separated from him and his love for all eternity. But you know what, what's interesting here it, it is what Paul makes clear is that, that this judgment isn't something that's just for the future. That this judgment on sin isn't something that's just for the end of life, that's just for the end of time, but rather that this judgment is in fact happening right now. See what it says, verse 18? The wrath of God is being revealed. And the way that God expresses his wrath and anger, his judgment now, it says, is by lifting off his hand of restraint 
and by letting people go in their own way. Letting them follow their own desires and letting them reap the consequences of this. Now, to many that might not seem like much of a judgment if in fact any kind of judgment at all. You know, God punishes us, God judges us by setting us free to more and more go, his, go our own way. Not much of punishment, thank you very much. I'll have more of that, lay it on me, Lord. Where that falls down is in the fact that God restrains and God protects us from things that would harm us. So you see, when a society is failing to give God his proper place, when a society is failing to do right by other people who are beloved of God, then one of the signs that that society is the focus of God's anger, is under God's judgment, is that God lets that society go to reap the consequences of its actions. Look here, three times it says in this passage, God gave them over. God gave them over. Now the ways in which this, this letting go by God shows itself in our life and in society is wide-ranging, wide-ranging here. So no one is left off the hook. For example, a, a growth in gossip and slander, disrespect to parents, heartlessness, ruthlessness, etc. All of these things, as they increase, are all indicators of a society that is now under God's wrath and judgment. However, there, there does seem to be a strong connection between a society turning from God or turned from God and a growth in sexual immorality, leading to anger and judgment, leading then to his hand of restraint being taken away and leading then to an explosion in sexual immorality. You see, once we turn our back on our Creator, once we start to ignore His guidance, then human desires, which, which properly guided by God is a blessing, then runs riot. And it is a recorded fact throughout history in different societies that increased sexual immorality is an inevitable consequence of this. And as a society turns away from God's order for sexual relations, from that which is designed to be good, to be grounded in faithfulness, and to lead to stable families and a stable society, as a society turns away from this to their own ways, well, again, it is an observable fact that this kind of unstable society, once it starts down this path, having turned its way, its back on the true joy and fulfillment found in living God's way, has to then find and invent even more extreme ways to find this distorted pleasure. And growth in all kind of things, like pornography, paedophilia, these are all symptoms of a godless society. All symptoms. You know, I've heard that said, that there's been no real growth in, in child abuse in recent years, that it's just the, the veil of secrecy that has been lifted. 
that people are now less afraid to speak out than they used to be. Now, maybe that is partially true. But, you know, I have a strong conviction that there's been a huge growth in that kind of behaviour in society. And then, of course, there's a clear reference here to homosexuality in these verses. And Paul makes it clear that homosexual practice is unnatural and is abhorrent to God. So let me make it clear. I believe that the church should be loving, compassionate, and understanding of homosexual people. I do. But I also believe that we should stand against homosexual practice as God does. In the past, we maybe haven't recognized this distinction in the way that we should, and we have maybe been at times ungracious and harsh and even cruel towards homosexual people. That was wrong, and it is wrong. But we still have to be clear and make a stand for God with regard to homosexual practice. Now, I want to say many people, homosexuals, the vast majority of society, won't be impressed by this, won't be moved by this, they won't like it. But while not reacting against perhaps their attacks on us, we need to continue to be gracious. We need to stand against any kind of discrimination or persecution of homosexuals. Yet I still believe that we must not shift an inch in regard to calling sin what God regards as sin. But let's, you know, kind of try and and taking the full impact of what's being said here. For I've often heard it said that if we don't sort things out and if we don't stem the tide of godlessness and immorality in our society, that soon we're going to come under God's judgment. What Paul says, though, is that a nation where immorality runs riot is a nation under judgment, is a nation encountering the wrath of God, and that there's more and more to come. More and more immorality with all its terrible consequences until we as a society turn back again in repentance to God. I mean, living as we do today in a nation where homosexuality is now seen and taught as an equally valid life choice, in a society where our government in Scotland and in the UK, condemns the homosexual lifestyle. We're to say that homosexuality is wrong, even to suggest that is more and more a crime. Well, I want to say, could God's world and his word be more turned on its head than this? Is this not the sign of a nation facing God's wrath under God's judgment. So to finish, what should our response be to God's anger? How should we respond to all that? Well, you know, another term that, that God uses for the process of, of God withdrawing his loving and restraining hand, another word the Bible uses for this is hardening. That God allows people's hearts to be hard. He strives with them no more and he lets them go the way that they 
have chosen. And one of the key Bible passages in relation to this is this, the parable of the prodigal son. The son chooses to go his own way. And with a broken heart, the father lets him go. It's only when the son is reduced to the level of eating pig food that he returns home and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. How we need to pray that God will be gracious, that he will intervene again in our land, and he will open our eyes to see that morally we are at the level of eating pig food. And we all need to get back to God. We have spiritually turned our back on God. And we need to get our nation back to God. How do we do it? I'll tell you. Our nation today is desperately in need of prayer. Sometimes we wonder, and I'm as guilty as this as anyone, we say, you know, what should we pray for? Look around you. Open your eyes. Our nation is falling apart. Don't pray for little things. Don't pray for trivial matters. Pray about what really matters. Pray that eyes will be opened, hearts will be softened, and that our nation will come back to God. And you know, we often plead, I know I do, please come to the prayer meeting. Please come. Well, let me make it clear. I don't want you at the prayer meeting because I want a big prayer meeting. I want you at the prayer meeting because our nation needs prayer. There is nothing more important in your life and nothing more important in our society today than that you get serious about praying for this nation. But if you bring this right down you know, to the individual level, this nation is facing God's wrath. This nation is under God's judgment. You are a part of this nation. So you are facing his wrath. You are under judgment. So what should your response be? Well, we've said prayer for Christians. But if we're not yet a Christian, if we're not yet at that point, then let me tell you, Jesus took upon himself the wrath the judgment, the punishment of God that should have been yours. On the cross, he took all our unrighteousness, all our sin upon himself, and he then gives us back his righteousness in return. He brings us back into a right relationship with God. That's offered, and all you have to do is by faith Take hold of the gift that God in Christ offers you. By faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, your Savior, your Lord, you today by that step of faith can take hold of the righteousness, the new life, the right relationship with God that's found only in Jesus. So you see, today it is your choice. So do you want to face God's wrath, God's judgment, personally. Do you want to face that? Are you going to opt for an eternity of separation from God, of separation from his love and all that is good? Or are you 
today going to choose Jesus? Are you today going to say, thank you, Lord, for dying for me? Thank you, Lord, for facing the wrath that should have been mine. Thank you for taking the punishment that should have been mine. Thank you for giving me instead life with the Father, the life of heaven in return. Ultimately, it is your choice. What are you going to choose? My prayer is that we choose Jesus. Let's come to God now. Father, we know that it's, it's hard to face what your word says to us about where we stand as human beings, where we stand today as a nation. It is hard. It hits against our, our pride. It hits against our sense of self. But Lord, that's the reality. That's what your word says to us. And ultimately, it's you that we have to answer to. So Lord, if you're speaking to our hearts today, Help us to respond. Help us to come in faith to you now. And Lord, help us to pray for our nation. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.